You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please take your copy of the scriptures and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, as we continue working our way through the Sermon on the Mount. So if you're new with us, uh, we practice expositional preaching, and we typically do that consecutively through books, which is why... During Christmas, we're talking about anger and lust and divorce, because that's what Jesus talks about in this text, and we're continuing to work our way through this. So we find ourselves in the middle of a very specific section of Jesus' sermon. If you've been with us in past weeks, you know that in verses 21 through 48, Jesus is instructing his followers by confronting the Pharisees and all those influenced by the Pharisees regarding a misunderstanding and misapplication of the Old Testament law. People were being taught that righteousness could be attained by mere obedience to a law. External conformity to a list of rules is all that mattered. Jesus is exposing this errant teaching by emphasizing the importance of the heart. He's not not downplaying obedience, but he's taking us deeper. He's explaining how sinful actions are simply the overflow of sinful desires, cravings, and longings. In verses 21 through 26, Jesus exposes the sinful heart of anger behind the sinful action of murder. In verses 27 through 30, Jesus exposes the sinful heart of lust behind the sinful action of adultery. The Pharisees believed that as long as they could avoid sinful actions, it didn't matter what happened in their hearts. If they avoided acts like murder and adultery, they were fine. And Jesus disagrees. Jesus understands the importance of the heart. This is why the promise of the new covenant is the promise of a new heart. And with a new heart comes transformed desires and a deep longing for and faith in Christ himself. It's with all of this in mind that we arrive at verse 31. And the topic is now divorce. Notice that the text follows the same pattern we find six times in verses 21 through 49, though it's phrased slightly differently here. Verse 31 begins, it was also said, and verse 32 then begins, but I say to you, again, setting up a very important contrast. Jesus is correcting a faulty way of thinking based on a legalistic misunderstanding and misapplication of the Old Testament law. I want to draw your attention to two primary points, one in verse 31 and one in verse 32. First, we will see that regarding marriage and divorce, first, Jesus abhors flippancy. Jesus abhors flippancy. Second, Jesus affirms Faithfulness. Jesus affirms faithfulness. First, Jesus abhors flippancy. Verse 31 again, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. 
Now, Jesus has already been addressing the topic of adultery and lust. And so here he continues under that broad canopy, but he turns his attention to the issue of divorce specifically. As Jesus cites the Old Testament, he refers to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. Let me read that text for you so you can hear the parallels. This is what Deuteronomy 24 says. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So I want you to notice that Jesus does not quote the text in Deuteronomy exactly as it is written, but he summarizes it in a way that makes it unmistakable what he's talking about. Now, before we dig into the precise problem Jesus is confronting, uh, let me take just a moment to consider why the Old Testament contained this instruction regarding divorce. It's, it's very elaborate and may have been very confusing to you as I read it. So let me give you the reasoning behind it. A divorce was a widespread phenomenon in the ancient world. So God instituted a regulation through Moses that was designed to do three things. First, protect the sanctity of marriage from indecency defiling the marital relationship. Two, protect the woman from a husband who might simply send her away without any cause. Three, document her status as a legitimately divorced woman so that she was not thought to be a harlot or a runaway adulteress. In other words, friends, there has always been a temptation and tendency for marriage to be treated as something far less than God intended it to be. So God in his wisdom put certain standards and protocols in place to help navigate relationships when sin ravages them. And even in that law, you can see his grace. It's important for us amidst all the brokenness of earthly relationships, to remember that God's design for marriage is good. God's design for marriage is good. Just a few years ago, in the aftermath of the Obergefell Supreme Court decision, the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission issued this declaration about marriage. This is what they said. The Bible clearly teaches the enduring truth that marriage consists of one man and one woman. From Genesis to Revelation, the authority of Scripture witnesses to the nature of biblical marriage as uniquely bound to the complementarity of man and woman. This truth is not negotiable. The Lord Jesus himself said that marriage is from the beginning, Matthew 19. 
So no human institution has the authority to redefine marriage any more than a human institution has the authority to redefine the gospel, which marriage mysteriously reflects. Friends, that is a glorious truth, and it's a wonderful design. And it's something that we must never waver on. Now, because every marriage that has ever existed involves two sinners, and hopefully that's not breaking news for anybody, there has always been the potential for any marriage to be destroyed by sin. For many centuries now, husbands and wives have rejected God's good plan and one or both have given in to sinful desires and countless relationships have been torn apart. Knowing this, and to reiterate what I mentioned before, God offered specific instructions to guard the sanctity of marriage while still allowing for divorce under very specific conditions. Time doesn't permit us to get into all the debates surrounding what is referred to as indecency in Deuteronomy 21, but, but here is what we do need to know. This exception, this exception as time went by, had been misinterpreted and misapplied terribly. In fact, theologian Michael Wilkins Right, and I want you to listen carefully to this. So into this context, Jesus is speaking. The more conservative school of Jewish scholars allowed divorce only for reasons of unchastity. The more liberal school stated that the Mosaic stipulation of indecency allowed a man to divorce his wife for burning his food. Later rabbis declared the divorce was required. It was required when adultery was committed. Because adultery produced a state of impurity that as a matter of legal fact, dissolved the marriage. So here's the point, brothers and sisters. By the time Jesus is teaching his followers in Matthew 5, there is a flippancy about marriage and divorce. This was not only practiced by Far too many people, but it was justified by those who claimed to be religious leaders. The question wasn't any longer, is divorce biblically permissible under certain circumstances? But the dominant thinking had become that divorce was permissible under virtually any circumstances. The divorce conversation had moved from the issue of permission to the problem of permissiveness. There was a flippant attitude toward marriage and divorce, and the scriptures were being used as justification for this sinful mindset. So do you see why Jesus is addressing this? Friends, God's good design is for the marriage of one man and one woman for life. According to Genesis 2.24, marriage is to be a permanent one flesh union. It is appropriate and biblical to say that divorce grieves the heart of God. God. 
there is a sense in which we can clearly say it's not what he desires. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight writes this, this covenant understanding of love, right? That's the framework that we as Christians work inside of. This covenant understanding of love means marital love reflects God's love, which means a divorce destroys the reflection of the God who is utterly faithful. Marital love then is defined by God's love. Our love for our spouse is to be with them, to be for them, and to be unto God's formative purpose for each member of the marriage. Brothers and sisters, this is God's good design. One man and one woman over a lifetime sharing a love defined and shaped by God's love, a love that is with each other, for each other, and unto God's formative and sanctifying purpose for each other. So oftentimes if I'm meeting with a couple who is experiencing uh, some marital tension to the degree that they want to get together and talk, one of the things I will say is, do you realize that in God's good plan, in his sovereign grace, he believes that you, husband, are the best person imaginable for the sanctification and growth of your wife. And you, wife, are the best person imaginable for the sanctification and growth of your husband. This is God's intent. This is his Design. Jesus was speaking directly to a people surrounded by the temptation to throw away or to walk away from marriage for almost any reason. So Jesus speaks up. First confronting flippancy and then calling for faithfulness. Regarding marriage and divorce, first, we need to know that Jesus abhors flippancy, but second, Jesus affirms faithfulness. Look at verse 32. In fact, let me read verses 31 and 32 together. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So in response to the flippancy of the Pharisees and those influenced by the Pharisees, those who adopted the mindset that if you want out of your marriage, simply give a bill of divorce and then everything is lawful and you're fine. In response to this egregious error, Jesus offers clarity. Jesus establishes clear criteria for divorce. Rather than a sort of anything goes as long as you technically obey the law by giving a certificate of divorce, and we can all see why they did this, right? It goes back to the verses we covered last week. In their zeal to keep the law, the Pharisees were very concerned that they would be able to check off the, I didn't commit adultery, Right? The I didn't commit adultery box on their self righteous checklist. 
two factors made it very easy for them to do this. The first was to ignore the importance of the heart, and therefore they could dismiss the adulterous nature of lustful desires and sexual fantasies. The other was to adopt this flippant posture toward certificates of divorce. As long as they technically jumped through that hoop, they could dismiss the adultery of remarriage. Jesus says in response, not so fast. Notice verse 32 again. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. According to Jesus, unless there is sexual immorality, the certificate is spurious and the future marriage is adulterous. Now, we could spend a lot of time examining all the different views of the word that we have translated as sexual immorality in verse 32. It's the Greek word porneia, which of course sounds familiar. Let me simply offer you what I believe this word entails and what Jesus is saying here. Even though God sees marriage as permanent, sometimes the marriage bond has been violated to such a degree that a spouse has already torn apart the marriage union, namely when a person has committed pornea. One commentator explains, pornea is a general term for sexual behaviors that express infidelity to the marital covenant. Jesus grants divorce for a general reason, sexual sins, and that means a variety of sexual sins would constitute grounds for divorce. Another commentator concludes, Jesus states unequivocally, the sacredness of the marital relationship but allows divorce to protect the non-offending partner and to protect the institution of marriage from becoming a vulgar sham. So understand that Jesus is doing both against the backdrop of permissiveness as it relates to divorce, Jesus makes allowance for divorce, but only under very specific circumstances. Now, what's, what's the subtext here? God designed marriage as a good gift where a husband and wife are faithful to each other faithful to serve and sacrifice for each other, faithful to love each other as Christ commands. So listen, in the Christian framework for marriage, biblical faithfulness removes any discussion of divorce. Biblical faithfulness removes any discussion of divorce. Faithfulness to God and faithfulness to each other honors God's good design for marriage and ensures that it will reflect the unfailing covenant love that Christ has for his bride. In other words, we don't need this instruction if husbands and wives are faithful. So 
So regarding marriage and divorce, Jesus abhors flippancy. He affirms faithfulness to which we respond, okay, then what? Then we must treasure marriage. We, as God's people, must treasure marriage. So in closing, what does it look like for us to treasure marriage, Redeemer? There are innumerable ways I could answer this question, but let me offer you five brief answers in closing. Number one, and if you can't write these down fast enough, email me and I'll send them to you because I want you to hear them. Number one, we will treasure marriage as we unapologetically embrace a biblical understanding of marriage. We will treasure marriage as we unapologetically embrace a biblical understanding of marriage. In a world that is constantly maligning and mocking a Christian understanding of marriage, churches like this one need to dig in and joyfully celebrate marriage as God designed it to be. We need to joyfully celebrate marriage as the one flesh union of one man and one woman for life. Marriage is God's idea. So we cannot and we must not, as his people, trifle with it. That's one. Number two, we will treasure marriage as we seek to cultivate healthy marriages within our church family. We will treasure marriage as we seek to cultivate healthy marriages within our church family. We need to begin teaching our children about God's good design for marriage when they're very young. We need to actively pray for and then inform the thinking of our teenagers in a way that fuels a desire for godly marriage. Older married couples. Older married couples, you need to actively seek out opportunities to invest in those preparing for marriage and those who are in the early stages of marriage. We need that dynamic in this church. Healthy marriages don't happen by accident. And the church has a wonderful opportunity to cultivate healthy marriages. Number three, we will treasure marriage as we present marriage as something to be pursued, not avoided. We will treasure marriage as we present marriage as something to be pursued, not avoided. Marriage is not an inconvenience or an interruption to the good life. In fact, a church can have a robustly biblical understanding of singleness and celebrate the goodness of marriage as something to be sought after and enjoyed. <clears throat> I agree with Al Muller, who writes, our bodies are not evolutionary accidents. 
And God reveals his intention for humanity through the gifts of sexual maturation, fertility, and sexual desire. As men and women, we are made for marriage. As Christians, those not called to celibacy are called to demonstrate our discipleship through honoring the creator's intention by directing sexual desire and reproductive capacity into a commitment to marriage. Marriage is the central crucible for accepting and fulfilling the adult responsibilities of work, parenthood, and the full acceptance of mature responsibilities. This is God's good design. Number four, we will treasure marriage. Don't even try to write this one down, it's too long. We will treasure marriage as we intentionally become a nurturing church family marked by patient and understanding help for struggling marriages and aggressive strengthening for already healthy marriages. Friends, marriage can be extraordinarily difficult. Many wonder at different times if it's worth it. Tragically, far too many will be ravaged by sin. Too many marriages will be ravaged by sin and there will be, there will be, there will be biblical grounds for divorce, but this does not mean a divorce is then commanded. No, as a default position, we want to see marriages restored. We want to see what is broken put back together again. We want to offer help to those who are deeply hurting. But brothers and sisters, we also want to be proactive we, we want to offer counseling and classes and organize programs and retreats and conferences all designed to help strengthen marriages. We want to do this for the glory of God and for your ever-increasing joy in Jesus. Here, here's how one pastor I know put it. We don't always want to be doing ministry at the bottom of the cliff where everyone lies in pain with brokenness. But we want to start setting up fences through different means at the top so we can help people before they get to the cliff but they fall over the edge. But that will only happen through proactive relationships and intentionality. Finally, number five, we will treasure marriage as we become a safe and secure home for those who have experienced the profound pain of divorce. We will treasure marriage as we become a safe and secure home for those who've experienced the profound pain of divorce. The heartbreaking reality is that marriages are constantly being destroyed by sin, whether it's sexual immorality or abuse or abandonment. Until Christ returns, Satan will continue to hate and he will continue to attack marriages. And hurting men and women and children will be left alone, vulnerable and afraid and feeling like they don't belong anywhere. My hope and prayer is that Redeemer will be the kind of faith family that offers a gospel-infused welcome to all those who are hurting. 
for many years now, the historic 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia has opened their service this way. And I pray this is our heart as well, Redeemer. To all who are spiritually weary and seek rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire victory, to all who sin and need a savior, to all who are strangers and want fellowship, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, to whoever will come. This church opens wide her doors and offers her welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray.